1: It's Takuyi here.
2: And I'm Gabby.
1: And welcome back to the podcast, my hoes. Okay, wait. Before we begin, before we begin, I need to say something. The last podcast episode we did was with uh, the Fat Electrician, uh, also known as Nick. Okay, no, everyone knows him as the Fat Electrician. I don't know why I'm saying also known as Nick. Nick, Nobody my knows buddy. Nick. My buddy, friend, thank you. Thank you for appearing on the podcast. That was, that was fun. Uh, the the thing that was interesting about that Wait, as can you,
2: you say his name out? Like, does he want people to know Nick, what his name is?
1: I mean, I'm not... I don't. I'm not giving any other details. Just Nick. Okay. Now, the the crazy thing about it for anyone that was listening is that in the last podcast episode, at the very end, we we skipped the story of the USS Texas because it was one of the most commonly repeated ones for battleships. And I was like, oh yeah, no, of course, everyone knows that one. We're not even going to tell the story. We have we've told all these other fun stories in here. It's fine. It's whatever. I mean, podcast has already been going on for you know almost an hour anyway. And then we got so many messages of people telling us like well, I don't know what this story is. What are you talk? Why did you skip this? Like, well, if it's so good, what what is it? And I was like, "Oh my god." Oh crap, I realized that not everyone just kind of knows these things. Like for me it's common knowledge, but they're, they they are technically kind of obscure stories. So
2: I'm going to tell you the story. Anyway, on D-Day? Yes. Okay, so on D-Day, there was this ship, the USS Texas and they wanted to hit targets that were further than their guns had reached so what was the captain's solution they would flood the side of the boat so they can angle the guns higher in order to hit the targets further up on the beach and what were they like the only ship that was actually hitting they
1: were the only ship that was able to do it
2: yeah they were the only ship that hit anything that day I guess they were useful because he was like hey let's just flood half of this ship and they just you know Geometry. Learn it.
1: Which, you know, that's actually one of the crazy things for it here. The people don't really realize. They think, like, okay, you have a ship that is bristling with guns. It has a kind of range, but these they have both a minimum and a maximum range. You cannot actually hit targets that are too close because your guns won't angle downwards to actually hit it. Simultaneously, if a target is too far off, the guns can only go up so high. Now, if they went higher, you'd be able to hit targets further off. Up to a point, but most guns, again, have a limitation on how high they can actually go. So they got around that. It's genuinely a very funny thing, but we're going back to another World War II story today. We're going past D-Day, well past, actually. This is, it's literally the end of the war. What was called, like, the final battle of World War II. I say of World War II, final battle of World War II in the European theater, like the, also regarded as one of the strangest battles, if not the strangest battle ever, the Battle of Castle Itter. Now, based on the pronunciation, there's going to be some differences there. I do apologize for it here, but I am American. I am speaking English and
2: you're speaking American English. Not even really. I'm sorry. I'm joking. Okay.
1: British school system. Hey, Gabby, uh, t- tell everyone, wh- what would you call a bear? that was naked so it was a a bear that was bear clothed right like it was that and it was drinking a alcoholic beverage made of malt a
2: bear yeah a bear bear beer.
1: oh, oh a beer
2: stop bullying me yeah
1: stop it. <laughs> okay little inside joke for us for years so when we initially had started dating there was a whole thing of like oh look you see a picture of something or something on discovery look it's a beer It's it's a what, Gabby? It's a beer, a bear? Yeah, that's what I said. No, no, it's not. But it's cute, and I like to think that somewhere out there, just like Wojtek, the Polish bear, there is indeed an alcoholic beer bear just for you, Gabby.
2: (laughs) Don't look at me. At this point in time, they're like, okay, it's been four minutes. You know what I do at podcasts where, like, the hosts are, like, bantering at the beginning? I just, like, skip.
1: <laughs> okay, fine, fine, fine. Let's, let's get into the story itself. The story of Castle Litter. So, on the morning of May 4th, 1945, we're at the very end of the war. First Lieutenant John Lee Jr. is sitting atop his turret of his M4 Sherman tank. And he's looking at the Austrian countryside that is around him and comparing it to the map that he has that is on his lap. You see, for the last five months, Lee, who is a stocky 27-year-old man from Norwich, New York, so he's literally my age, he has been in charge of Company B of the 23rd Tank Battalion, which is on a headlong advance across France, and they are going into Germany. And now, this was going to be a very weird and eventful thing for him at the very last of the end of the days of World War II in Europe into Austrian Tyrol. So his tank, nicknamed Besot and Jenny, it was parked on this low hill which is on the south bank of the Inn River, and it was overlooking the village of Kurfstein, which was around three miles southwest of the German border. All three of the 23rd tank companies had crossed the frontier the day before, leading the 12th Armored Division's combat command on its drive southwest from the suburbs of Munich. So Lee's company had spearheaded the drive into Kerfstein, and they had fought its way through pretty formidable German roadblocks before clearing the town of its few defenders. By this point, there were some desperate defenses that were going on, but for the most part, the fighting had died down. Now with the lead elements of the 36th Infantry Division moving in to assume responsibility for the area, Lee and his men were trying to get a few minutes rest. They were hoping that at this point, Kirstein was going to be the last battle. Like every soldier in the European theater, he knew that the war was going to end at any given moment. Berlin had actually surrendered two days earlier, and organized German opposition was crumbling. And the young officer didn't want any of his men to be the last Americans that were going to be killed. Because, I mean, honestly, that's really one of the tragedies in things that has happened in wars throughout all of history. The pieces have been signed. Everything is said and done. And this was especially common many, many years ago, like before you had modern communication techniques. There were there were battles that occurred and were fought after peace was signed because the soldiers didn't know that they were at peace. And that sucks because people died for literally no reason at that point. Yet even as he was wondering when the war would actually end, events were unfolding that would be very different, be very different and very shocking from what norm- one would normally expect. They were going to shatter his dream of immediate peace. You see, Lee was going to be thrust into an unlikely battle that would involve a mountain castle, a group of French combative VIPs, and actually an alliance with the enemy, and a fight to the death against overwhelming odds. The castle that was soon to be the place that was in Lee's life lay 14 miles southwest of where he sat, perched atop his tank. Topped with storybook crenellations and accompanied by a massive, rich history, was Schloss Itter, also known as English and Schloss as Castle Itter. Now, this was first mentioned in land records as early as 1240. It is a ancient castle going back by, at that point, 700 years. Since then, Itter had passed through a number of different hands, but... After Germany's march like of 1938 annexation of Austria, the castle's construction and relatively remote location it attracted the attention of the Nazis and it made the perfect area after absorbing Austria into the Greater German Reich of a target that could be a like requisition for official use for housing prisoners. Including it for several months it was just general housing in 1942 but then, it, it, it was a really weird thing. Like, they had this whole thing, the German Association for Combating the Jan- Dangers of Tobacco. Because there was this whole organization that was dedicated against fighting tobacco in Nazi Germany.
2: When you say fighting tobacco, um, I just picture a bunch of people punching, like, the plant, because, you know, we went to do tobacco factory. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, it was a tobacco museum.
1: You think, like, if some people were... Um... If they were what what so was the term?
2: Sorry, sorry. Were they trying to like stop people from using it? Yeah. In like the forties?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. For those of you who know, tobacco actually has a really crazy interesting history. Little bit of a side note, but what she's talking about going into the sixties, yes, there have been many, many things. In the eighties and nineties, there was a fad that came over from Japan where you would put uranium. Or was it the 70s? I think it was the 70s and the 80s. You had uranium chips inside of your tobacco, like your cigarette cartons. Because supposedly, this uranium was going to eliminate the tar and toxins inside the cigarette and make it healthier. No, I'm not kidding. They literally were putting uranium in cigarettes. Anyway, moving on from here. So they wanted to get this. Uh, they wanted to get this castle because it was going to be a strong defensive position, and it would be requisitioned later by the Wehrmacht on behalf of the SS in order to turn it into a kind of prison. You see, surviving records indicate that from the moment of its 1943 requisitioning, Itter was planned as a detention facility for VIP prisoners, the ones that Germans considered potentially. Valuable. Well, at least valuable enough that they were going to keep them alive and actually housed in kind of decent conditions. See, officially, it was referred to as a Evakrunslager, which was an evacuation camp. So the castle was put under the operational control of the Regional Concentration Camp Command at Dachau, which was 90 miles to the northwest. At one, at, like, as one of the sprawling death camps, 197 satellite facilities in southern Germany and northern Austria it drew its funding, its guard force, and its support services directly from Dachau and, like, the other, like, the actual kill camps. So that's where they got a lot of the supplies that they would, you know, function, but just for VIPs instead of trying to eliminate people. But you see, the castle's conversion into a high-security prison didn't really take long. Like, this was a castle. It was already—it had massive walls. It had a deep, dry moat. It, like, it had a basically impregnable gatehouse. Like, this thing was huge. It had all this these wires, these different things that were tracing around it. It had dozens of locks all over the place that would render the castle essentially escape-proof. It was going to be very easy to turn this whole thing into a prison. So, 20 of the existing guest rooms in the central housing structure were just converted into secure, but I guess, you know, roomy, because, I mean, it's a castle— it, it it was kind of a luxury castle. It's not like it was made specifically just for defense, so they got converted into cells, which were fairly comfortable. And other places got turned into, you know, guard rooms, offices, that sort of thing. Which I mean, if you're going to be a prisoner anywhere, being a prisoner in a literal luxury castle is not going to be your worst option. Like it wasn't bad. The SS planners at the camp command at Dachau tapped Sebastian Wimmer, who was the equivalent of a captain in the SS, as the commander of this new prison and assigned him some 25 members from the SS's concentration camp guard service. See, these soldiers were, for the most part, the older, I guess the kind of like the less capable troops, the ones that didn't really have much combat experience and weren't expected to fight. Most had served as guards at the larger camps, and they were happy to send whatever was left of the war, you know, just, just guarding VIP prisoners in an, Alp- like in an Alpine castle that was going to be way further away from any of the other fights and horrible things that were happening all over the war, and also from the really bad shit that was happening during the final solution, uh, as the Germans termed it. So within days of the completion of its conversion into a prison— Castle Itter welcomed the first of what would become a, like, it was just a treasure trove of the big tops, like the VIP captives. You had Albert Lebrun, who had been president of France until he was replaced by Philippe Petain in July of 1940. You had former Italian prime minister and dedicated anti-fascist Francesco Nitti, And you had André-François Ponset, who was the former French ambassador to both Germany and Italy. Now, these three didn't stay long at Castle Itter. They were quickly supplanted by the entirely French cast of characters that would remain there through the end of the war. Among them was the former Prime Ministers Edward Daladier and Paul Renaud. You had trade union leader Léon Jouhaux. You had Generals Maxime Weygand and Maurice Gamelin. You had tennis star Jean Botra, or Borotra, and you actually had right-wing leader Colonel François de la Roque and Michel Clemenceau, who was politician and a son of the World War-era War Prime Minister Georges Clemenceau. Now, also present was going to be Alfred Kalaloo, who was this, like, not Callaloo. kalalo Sorry, Kalaloo is a completely different thing here, but it's like, it's a really delicious spinach dish. That sounds weird. You're looking at me funny right now. I know you are, Gabby.
2: You made me hungry when you said Kalaloo.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so... Alfred was a relatively minor politician who was being held at Itzer only because his wife, who was imprisoned with him, was actually the sister of a Free French leader called Charles de Gaulle. And Renaud's 31 year old secretary and future wife, Christine Marib, Jehovah's secretary, Madame Brooklyn, the wives of Borotra and Weygand, and Marcel Granger, a relative, you know, who was a relative of Free French General. Henri Garonne. Like, it was a bunch of people who were either famous themselves or they were related to people or affiliated with people who were a big deal. Like, individuals that would be either valuable prisoners themselves or hostages for other people. Now, while all of these people were French, the prisoners at Itter could not have been more different, at least in terms of politics. You see, Renaud and Daladier, they were bitter political enemies, and both the former prime ministers detested General Wigand, who, actually having replaced Gamelin as supreme commander of French forces in May of 1940, he surrendered to and initially collaborated with the occupying Germans. So Gamelin, for obvious reasons, was not at all fond of Weygand. Like, these, they, they were not friendly with one another, and they sided with Renan against Daladier. Laroque, who in the early 1930s had led a anti-communist force called the Croix de Faux, which is like the cross of fire. Actually, that's feu, feu. F- f-. Gabby, how do you say fire in French? Faux? feu, Faux? F- 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 don't look at me like that. It's a genuine question.
2: I don't know. You put me on the spot in my brain blank, but I do know if you're pronouncing Renaud. Renaud, it's wrong. Renaud? It's Renaud.
1: I say Renault to that.
2: We're going to edit out so much. No, we're not.
1: We're leaving that crap in. I want to
2: apologize (laughs) deeply.
1: Okay. So essentially none of these people could really stand each other. Like it it was not, it, it was not a situation that anyone wanted to be in. You had people that were former members of the far right. You had the trade union group. You had all these different people. Okay, Barotra, as an example, he wasn't at ITER because he was a famous tennis player, but rather because he, at one point, was Vichy France, which was the, uh, the collaborative government that was under the control of the Germans that controlled the southern half of France in World War II and worked with the Germans to kind of establish a kind of French state there. He was actually the head of sports and physical education there. Until April 1942, where he was actually caught because he was attempting to flee the country in order to try and join allied forces, but it didn't work out for him. He got, he got caught. So these VIP prisoners, they very quickly segregated themselves by their different, you know, political persuasions. You had the more democratic minded people sticking with each other. You had the more communist people, you had the fascist, etc. or the more like, essentially they, they were divided into more of their political groups. And so each person distrusted the other because you didn't know who potentially was collaborating and who could be feeding information to the Germans. So what they did is they took to eating at separate tables in the very small dining room. You had the Wigan's, the Barotras, and Lerac at one. You had Renand, Marbry, Gamelin, and Clemenceau at another. And the others who were seen as, I guess, neutral, they didn't side with one or the other, they were at a third table. I mean... We can only imagine just how heated that shit got among these people. These, these were the guys who, at any point, they were the greatest of enemies. But now they were all stuck together in the same camp. <laughs> where they were just being held together because they were all French VIPs. And they didn't like each other. And I, it's, it's just a messy situation. See, even when it came to the Germans who were, were looking at them... Or, or looking after them, it, it was kind of a mixed bag. The attitude that they had was kind of described as a mixture between brute force, being polite, the occasional attempt at friendship, but it it wasn't good. Mind you, daily life for these captives was definitely a lot better than it would have been at virtually any run German-run prison. Like, any of these. The French inmates quote-unquote did sleep in converted guest rooms they had free access to the castle's library they took their daily exercise in the courtyard which was built this around this massive 13th century fountain the Ladir even had a clandestine radio in his room in which he would listen to bbc broadcasts which was courtesy of a yugoslav political prisoner called zunomir kutsovich and he was known among the prisoners as andre you see, Kuchovic had been transferred by the Germans from Dachau to Itter in order to work as an electrician, and he would actually later play a very key role in his fellow captive survival. All in all, it was a pretty cushy situation, especially in comparison to what it could have been. But this kind of easy routine at Castle Itter, it began to change as Germany's fortunes began to fall. Arguably, 1942 to 1943 was the high point. It was the greatest extent of where Germany was. But throughout 1944 and into 1945, things started to get worse. Food became increasingly more scarce for both the prisoners and their guards, and a growing shortage of fuel for the castle's generators meant that they had to start relying on candles and lanterns, which ultimately would replace the electric lights. So while the prisoners could rationalize the deprivations as a sign of Germany's impending defeat, they also knew that their lives were not going to be worth very much to the Nazi leaders if they were intent on covering up their own, you know, war crimes. During the last days of April, Clemenceau, who spoke fluent German, he summoned Wimmer into a meeting with Renaud and Gamelin, and he reminded the castle's commandant that the lives of all the French prisoners were in the SS officers' hands. Wimmer replied that the deaths of any of the prisoners there would not be compatible with Germany's post-war interests and said he would aid in their escape if it was necessary. But, nonetheless, the arrival of a constant stream of senior SS officers in the castle did keep the French on edge. You see, often they were accompanied by their wives and they were always loaded down with weapons, with baggage, booty, like treasure. They would have all the stuff that they had looted from all these places that Germany had conquered and now were taking as trophies. The SS men used it as a kind of way station as they attempted to escape the advancing allies. I mean, most stayed only long enough to requisition what food and water they could, but on the night of April 30th, 1945, Edward Wieter, the last commander of Natchau, he settled in with a retinue of his subordinates and their wives and children. I mean, this was a bit of a larger dude. He he's described as a kind of brute because he had ordered the execution of some 2,000 prisoners before leaving Dachau. The French captives at Eter, they were aware of the executions and they were concerned that Wieter's arrival just meant that their time was up, that they were going to die. But, as it turns out, the only death that Wieter had on his mind was one. Can you guess? Can you guess who? No, who? His own. Early on the morning of May 2nd, he shot himself in the heart. Incredibly, he actually lived because he shot himself in the heart. And it's like, which is such he a... Lived. Yeah, no, he lived. He lived uh, for a little bit. He then, obviously, he was like, oh, crap, I'm not dying. So he turned the gun on himself and shot himself in the head.
2: Are you joking? No,
1: he shot himself in the heart first, like, a, I, I, like an idiot. And then he shot himself in the head.
2: Like... Uh, wow.
1: It's funny because a group of um, SS individuals tried to bury him in the village cemetery, but the local priests stopped them. So they ended up hurriedly interring him, who, mind you, this guy was known as the Butcher of Dachau in an unmarked grave in a field that was just outside of the castle walls. It was not exactly a good end to the guy. And so his suicide galvanized Wimmer, who abruptly fled the castle with his wife early on May 4th after assuring Renault and Daladier ...that he would find any way that he could to try and protect the French prisoners against the Waffen-SS troops. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. They were still active in the surrounding hills. You see, just because the Germans were surrendering all over the country doesn't mean that all of them were. There were still all these SS groups that were trying to continue on the fight. Now, his words were only kind of true. I mean, he did try to ensure that there was, you know, protection to—he tried to do what he could to aid all of the war-wounded Waffen-SS officers that were recuperating nearby, but he didn't really do much. You see, at Wimmer's urging, there was this young officer, whose name we don't actually know, who agreed to put on his uniform and then go up to the castle to look after the French VIPs. So essentially, he kind of tried to keep his word, but his word was to pass off the job onto someone else. Like, okay, listen, he's like, I'm going to help you, I'm going to help you, I'm going to do this. Don't worry, I got it, I got it, I got it. And his method of getting it was to just get someone else to do it.
2: It's called delegating. It's called delegating.
1: <laughs> so needless to say, this wasn't exactly great. The Commandant's sudden departure from Castle Itter convinced the guards that it was up. Like, things were... It was done. They had to leave. And so on daybreak, on May 4th, the French notables, they woke up and found that their former prison was was now theirs. Like, they, they owned it. Like, there, there was literally no one else there. And so with the urging of Wagon and Gamelin the former prisoners broke into the weapons room and they armed themselves with anything they could. Essentially, you know, all the pistols, rifles, submachine guns, whatever still had ammunition, they would get. And putting their differences aside, at least for the moment, Renault Daladier, and the two generals agreed that the presence of SS units in the area meant that these prisoners, they, they couldn't wait to be liberated. They had to do something. So the action that they chose and the agent that they chose to do it was that helpful guy before, the guy who was supplying the radios, the uh, Zunimir Kuchevich, a.k.a. Andre, who had volunteered to go find the nearest allied unit and bring it back to secure the castle. So, he jumps aboard a bike that was liberated from a shopkeeper in the surrounding village, and Kuchevich then sets off for Wardle, which was this large town on the Inn River around six miles northwest of the castle. See, he was unaware that much of the town was still being occupied by elements of a Waffen-SS regiment. And he was lucky, in fact, to stumble upon instead a group of Wehrmacht soldiers that were led by a... It was this guy named Major Gangel. He, he, he was ready to give up. He was not wanting to fight anymore. All he wanted to do was surrender. And so upon hearing of the French notables at Castle Itter he realized that by aiding in their rescue, that would actually do well for him, because he wanted this fight to be over. So he dispatched Kuchevich back towards Innsbruck, 38 miles to the southwest, and Innsbruck had just recently been taken by the U.S. 103rd Infantry Division, so chances were that he would be able to encounter some American troops that were moving east towards Wargill. But to be on the safe side and possibly to better his own chances with the Americans, Gangl then jumped inside of his, like, his truck and leading this pact with some 20 Wehrmacht soldiers, he sped off back towards Kufstein, 13 miles in the opposite direction in order to kind of aid things. So this two-pronged effort to locate the American units, that actually paid off. So halfway between Worgel and Innsbruck, Kutovic then encountered elements of the 103rd Infantry Division and was then directed to Major John Kramers, who was this German-speaking officer in the 103rd's military government section. So Kramer summoned the French liaison officer by the name of Lieutenant Eric Luton, and together the two then formulated a kind of rescue plan. Within two hours, they had pulled together a small task force of four M10 tank destroyers, three jeeps, and a truck that would bear a platoon of infantrymen from the 411th Infantry Regiment. Accompanied by any American war correspondents, Meyer Levin and French photographer Eric Schwab, the convoy would then set out for Itter along the same kind of roads that were, at this point, caked with refugees. I mean, there there were people that were fleeing in any direction. But they had to get back to Innsbruck as soon as possible. Their trip wasn't exactly... Uneventful, though, as uh, Kutchevich has been, because several miles short of Wargill, Kramer's column was hailed by a group of Austrian anti-Nazi partisans who had been fighting SS units further along the road. So as the Americans were wondering, like, okay, well, what are we going to do next? All of a sudden, enemy artillery rounds just started landing just 100 yards away from them. They quickly had to decide to pull into the cover of the surrounding trees and then wait for the barrage to lift before moving on towards Itter. Everything around them was still a war zone. Just because it was the end of the war does not mean that it was the end of the war, you know? Like, just imagine that, though. It's like, all right, hey, everyone has surrendered. Congrats. And then there's just some partisan who sticks out and just shoots you with something.
2: That would suck. It really I mean, would. So when people surrendered, everyone just didn't go, oh, man, I guess it's over.
1: No, so um, th- there were, okay, so you had all the SS units. And the other thing that was happening in Germany at the time was that there were, um, what was the term? The English term that we had here was the werewolf soldiers, which were literally children and old men who were disguised as refugees that were given kind of improvised weapons to just take out soldiers. Why? Because that was Hitler's plan to save Germany was to use the children and the elderly as a kind of human shield That's really with explosives. Sad. Yeah, no, that's literally what happened. So they had all these improvised weapons. Remember, I covered some of them, like the uh, the thing that looks like a fire extinguisher, except it's a literal flamethrower. Like that. Um, imagine they. I can't remember the name of it here. I want you to imagine a super soaker tank, like one of those squirt guns for it here, except it is a literal flamethrower that just fires like a second. They they doled out thousands of those to people to try and flame troops as they would enter Berlin. Like, that was the idea. Okay, so anyway, Major Gongle, meanwhile, though, he had rolled into Kufstein with this huge white flag that was going from his vehicle. So his story of a group of French VIPs that were being held in a nearby castle, that did earn him a trip to the 23rd Tank Battalion's forward command post, where he told his tale to the battalion's commander and its intelligence officer. And that was when First Lieutenant Jack Lee's dream of, you know, finish things, uh, like finishing things off peacefully. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen, man. It wasn't going to happen anymore. So he got summoned to the 23rd command post where he volunteered to take a patrol up to the castle and, you know, secure the VIPs. At least that was the plan. You know, we're going to go up here. We're going to secure the VIPs. And that's it. That's going to be end of the thing. It's not going to be a problem. It's going to be over. So he chooses eight volunteers to man the patrol's two Shermans, his own Basatin Jenny, and Lieutenant Wallace's Holbrook's Bosch Buster. And Lee's crew then included Sergeant William T. Rushford, you had Corporal Edward J. Sismic, Corporal Edward J. Siner, uh, you had Herbert G. McCailey, Harry Bass, Company B's motor officer, and also a close friend of Lee's, they took command of the Bosch Buster, whose crew included Tech Sergeant William E. Elliott and Sergeant Glenn E. Sherman. See, Lee also tapped six members of the all-African American company, the 17th Armored Infantry Battalion, to ride atop the tanks. At the last moment, Lee also took five M4s and their crews from the 36th Infantry Division's 142nd Infantry Regiment to provide a kind of, you know, extra firepower. Like, just in case. Just in case anything happened, because you never know. So, bringing up the rear of the column was the Wehrmacht's Gangle and his Kubelwagen, which I'm i, I, I so, I, I sound so bad saying the different names in here. But essentially, it was the German armored car for what they had, and the kind of truckload of German soldiers that were going with them. All in all, it was a very mixed ragtag force. I say ragtag, like they had pretty good equipment overall, but you had this weird mixed American-German force that was going by. It was like really a, like all people from all walks of life were going. So the group sets off towards Wargall in the early afternoon, and its members were very aware that there were still a large number of Waffen SS units that were still putting up resistance all over the countryside as i mean they were essentially running sabotage and guerrilla efforts just everywhere fortunately for lean's men the ss regiment that had been in worgle just hours earlier had pulled out of town so Austrian partisans welcomed the Americans and at their urging, Lee agreed to leave the 536th Infantry Division tanks on the northern edge of Worgel to kind of defend the road that was leading to the city in case anyone tried to reclaim it, quote-unquote. So now commanding only two tanks, 14 Americans, and Gongol's Wehrmacht troops, Lee set off through the center of town and heading towards Itter. Now, there was only one substantial bridge over the small river that bisected the valley, and Lee discovered that the SS had wired it with demolition charges. He had the Wehmach troops remove the explosives, then posted Bass's tank and its accompanying infantrymen there to protect the crossing point. Bass then chose to accompany Lee to the castle, leaving Sergeant Elliot in command of the Bosch Buster. Now, by this time, Lee could see his objective just over four miles ahead, and he ordered his driver to move out carefully. Which was a good move, because within minutes, the Sherman rounded a curve on the road and almost drove straight into a squad of SS troops that were trying to set up a roadblock. The infantrymen then riding on the tank's rear deck opened fire, as did the Sherman's machine gunner and gongles troops in the truck, and the SS troops then immediately fled into the surrounding woods. Lee ordered his driver to open her up, and the tank slewed around the corner and up uh, up the road to the castle. The Wehrmacht truck was close behind, and roaring over the short bridge at the top of the road, the vehicles lurched to a stop directly in front of Itter's main gate, right as night began to fall. This was big. They made it. They finally made it. And at the arrival of their anticipated rescue effort, the like the French guests were at first happy and then they were not. Why? This was a really small force. Like, this was essentially a slightly large patrol, I guess you could say. Like, the former prisoners had been expecting that, you know, for people of their quality and status, that there should be a column of armor that was supported by masses of heavily armed infantry. But what they got was a single tank. And eight dudes. Seven Americans. And much to their annoyance, a truckload of armed Germans. So look at this like, what the hell is this? Like, why are these guys here? They did their best. I mean, yeah, I mean, they did. So, while Gongle went out of his way to be polite and accommodating to the French in any way that he could, Lee was... I mean, I mean, he was kind of brash. He was just going around ordering people as much as he could. Paul Renault would have found him very irritating, for in his post-war memoirs, the former prime minister remembered Lee as crude in both looks and manners. That's so mean. It's so mean, but it's so stereotypical, like... Like, you think of this, of, like, the stereotypical image of the French looking down on someone with disdain. Like, you know that stereotype of the elite Frenchman? Yeah. That pretty much was how he viewed Tim. So mean. <laughs> he is quoted as saying, if Lee is a reflection of America's policies in Europe, then Europe is for a, in for a very hard time. Oh, no. Like, wow, dude. Okay, you just got saved. Quit your bitching. Like, seriously? <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't matter. Crude or not, Lee did know his job. Like, he, he was he was good. Within minutes of arriving at, ca- at the castle, he compiled a list of the French notables, he positioned the Sherman in front of the main gate so that it could kind of block and then command the road, and he began to scrounge up any food that he could and arrange for bunks and beds for his men, who were both tired and hungry. So after a brief round of celebratory toast with the French... Lee, Bass, Gongle, and the young SS officer from the village then set off to scout the defensive positions and talk over their strategy of what it is that they were going to do. Lee's plan was simple. He didn't have enough vehicles to move his men. He didn't have them to take... Well, he did. But he didn't have enough to take his men and the French and the Germans back to Kufstein. So if they left, they would have to leave some forces behind that would have been easy pickings. So he stayed put and he waited to be relieved by any advancing American forces. In this case, by being there, he hoped to be able to deter any forces that would go after him, but the presence of the Waffen SS units in the immediate area was a bit of a worry. See, Lee believed the Castle Itter's thick walls would allow his tiny force to hold off most of them, but he didn't know what would happen if the attackers were going to be particularly determined. This guess was not going to take long to actually kind of figure out whether or not it would uh, amount to anything or not. See, he was going to be put to the test. Just after 11 o'clock that evening, the Waffen-SS troops in the hills began to open fire on the castle with rifles and machine guns. Now, whether or not they had come to eliminate the French VIPs or just decided to wipe out the small allied force that was in their immediate area, we don't really know. But the results were the same. Lee's men and the Wehrmacht troops immediately moved to their prearranged positions and began returning fire. The shooting from both sides remained without anything really developing until dawn, especially, you know, it's at night, it's, it's dark, it's really hard to see anything, you don't know what's really happening. But with first light, things became very serious. Machine guns began to pound the exterior walls and they blew out the narrow windows of the central housing block. Then, an 88mm anti-tank gun lobbed a shell into the upper floor of the main building, destroying Gamelin's empty room. Moments later, a second 88 round slammed into Lee's tank as Corporal Simic was preparing to fire its main gun at the SS men in the village. Simic jumped from the tank and then ran to cover behind the castle gate just before its gas tanks blew up, turning the Sherman into a giant raging inferno. So the destruction of the Basahdin' Jenny signaled the start of a general attack. It was the only tank that was defending their position. SS troops began to swarm from the tree line, heading from the east, sprinting towards the castle's main gates. Others began scrambling up the hill on the west, trying to reach the relative cover of the lower walls. The American and German defenders immediately began to pour fire from the castle's upper walls and its loopholes, taking a heavy toll with their rifles and machine guns. Even then, the French notables also joined. Renaud, Clemenceau, Lerac, and Petroura, they all got guns and began to fire at the attackers. Nonetheless, fire from the SS troops and the still-concealed 88mm gun did kill several of the Wehrmacht men and wounded several others. Among the dead was actually Major Gongel, who was killed by a sniper as he and Lee attempted to spot the 88's position from a rooftop observation post. But by this time, Major John Kramers and his party from Innsbruck had reached the bridge that was outside of Orgel, where Elliot and Bosch Buster were standing guard. And from that vantage point, they could very clearly see that the battle was raging all around the castle. So Kramers' group consisted by then of just four men. You had himself, Eric Lutton, Meyer Levin, and Eric Schwab, all who were riding in a jeep. And since Kramers had crossed beyond the 103rd Infantry Division's operational boundary and into the 36th area of operations, he had been ordered to halt the advance of his M-10s and infantry, which, of course, really pissed him off, so he left them in town. But the small party soon grew by the time it reached the bridge, so lead reconnaissance elements of Lieutenant Colonel Marvin J. Coyle's 2nd Battalion, the 142nd Infantry Regiment, had joined Elliott and Bosch Buster, and while the new arrivals knew nothing of the castle iter itself or the operation, they very quickly secured Coyle's permission to join the rescue effort. So before setting off with the reinforcements, Kramers had attempted to raise Lee by radio. But he wasn't able to do so, nothing really seemed to work, so he urgently cast around for another means when one of the Austrian partisans pulled him into Worgel's undamaged town hall, picking up a telephone, and he simply just called the castle. So Kramers was soon speaking with Lee, who reported that the SS fire was increasing and that the defenders were running perilously low on ammunition. Kramers told him that help was coming, and he jumped back in his jeep with Luton, Levin, and Schwab. The four then roared off in the pursuit of the 142nd infantry tracks and half-tracks, which had set off towards the castle, with Bosch Buster in the lead. So while news of the approaching relief column did make things better, at least morally, for the Castle defenders, it didn't really do anything to help them in the situation that they had right now. The SS attackers hadn't yet managed to breach the fortress's walls, but they were pressing the attack with what Lee would later call extreme vigor. By noon, the American-German force was almost entirely out of ammunition. Aware that he was running out of options, Lee accepted John Barotra's offer to leave the castle and guide the relief force, through the village's twisting streets the former tennis star then slipped out during a lull in the firing and dashed across 40 yards of open ground eluded several groups of ss men in the woods and set off at a jog down the road towards worgle always the pragmatist lee began planning what he and his shrinking command would do if the relief force didn't show up in time and the solution I, it was actually kind of crazy. So what they ended up doing is that the defenders and the French notables would withdraw into the castle, like into the castle's massive keep, and they would use their few remaining rounds of ammunition, their bayonets, and if necessary, their fists to make the SS men fight for every stairwell because there was no way that they could hold the walls, like they they couldn't. And trying to take the enemies at a range just wasn't going to work. So by withdrawing further in, every hallway, every floor, every secure point on there was going to become a kill zone. And so securing the agreement of both Weigand and Gamlin, both of whom had deferred to the young American throughout the battle despite their own exalted ranks, Lee began pulling defenders off the walls and bringing them and the French back towards the keep. So sensing victory, the SS troops pressed their assault on the castle's entrance. Just before three in the afternoon, a squad of men was settling into position to fire an anti-tank rocket at the front gate, when all of a sudden, the sound of automatic weapons and tank guns behind them in the village signaled a radical change in the tactical situation. One of the Wehrmacht soldiers on top of the walls of the keep alerted the castle's defenders that the relief force was shooting its way up the road by shouting out, Amerikanse Panzer. The SS forces heard this and immediately began to melt into the surrounding woods. The battle for Castle Itter was over. And so within minutes, Bosh Buster and the other vehicles rolled up the front gates to be met by the castle's, well, jubilant, they were so happy defenders. You had people all over. You had white, you had black, American, French, German, like everyone. And as journalist Meyer Levin set about interviewing everyone in sight, Lee and Bass walked over to Elliott and Sherman, feigning, you know, being, Annoyed and irritated, Lee looked Elliot in the eye and said simply, "'Well, what kept you?' This had the immediate effect of them all just dissolving into laughter, fueled in equal parts by exhaustion and also just relief. Later, as members of the rescue force began removing the dead and caring for the wounded, the French notables were driven off in hastily requisitioned automobiles. They were on their way to Innsbruck to be suitably vetted by succession of senior Allied officers." After which, Renault Daladier, and the rest would return to France and hopefully then resume their careers. And undoubtedly, their their political issues that they had with each other. But for Lena's men, the battle's aftermath was a bit more anticlimactic. I mean, the seven Americans and the surviving Wehrmacht soldiers all piled unceremoniously into the back of a two-and-a-half-ton truck for the ride back to Kerfstein. Once there, the Germans were marched off to the POW cage. The African-American soldiers rejoined their unit, and Lee, Bass, and the other tankers settled in for a well-deserved chow and sleep. Jack Lee and Harry Bass were later recognized for their leadership during the Battle of Castle Itter, and the former with the Distinguished Service Cross and the latter with the Silver Star. At the end of May, Lee finally received his long-awaited promotion to captain. And that's really it. While the unusual circumstances of the action at Castle Itter did make it the subject of a few newspaper and magazine articles, including a 1945 July piece in the Saturday Evening Post by Levin, Lee himself summed it up best in the few months before his death in January of 1973. He was asked by a reporter in Norwich about how he felt about the long-ago incident, and Lee thought about it, then replied, Well, it was just the damnedest thing. And that's really it. Didn't get nearly as much attention until nowadays, with a lot more people telling these kinds of stories of all these actions that have occurred in the past. But I do hope that it was a story that you all actually enjoyed listening to. But before we go ahead and end things for today, it is time for today's listener story. And today's submission actually comes from a man by the name of Juan Cordova. Juan, thank you very much for listening. I'm going to go ahead and be telling the story that you've submitted here. Hello, Stakuyin Gabby. This request is dedicated to my grandmother, Rebecca Felix, who, like you, was a storyteller through and through. Well, thank you, friend. My grandma Becky adored her family, which was rather big. Six kids and 20 grand and great-grandkids. Man, that is actually quite extensive. And never missed a chance to tell a good tale. Sadly, she passed away in June of 2020. Because she was in her 90s and the pandemic being what it was, most of the family were not able to see her in those last few months. But we still pass around the story she would tell us all the time. And I'm sorry that that happened to you, but I appreciate you at least letting her story live on this way. The one I was hoping you could share was one of her favorites. And while it never happened to her, she always told this one with vigor and pride. It happened to her mom, Lupe, and her grandmother, Luz. My great-grandma, Luz, eventually married Francisco Gonzalez, but we don't know what year. But this is the story of how they met Panchal Villa and made their way to America. The year was somewhere around 1912 to 1915 during the Mexican Revolutions. Bandits were everywhere, and Francisco and his son, Frutilloso, had to leave Mexico early for two reasons. One, to work in America and send funds back home to support Luz and the girls. And two, if they stayed, then they would have been dragged into the war one way or another, either by the army or the revolutionaries or the bandits. And yes, like, in a time of conflict and war, that is something that would happen, particularly during civil conflicts, as each side is trying to draft as many men into their banner as they can. This left Luz and her daughters, sadly, I don't know any besides my great-grandma Lupe, who was probably a teenager at the time in Guanajuato. Things got worse day by day, but they started hearing stories about a dangerous revolutionary called Pancho Villa that many feared, but... He also helped the poor and looked out for the people of Mexico trying to stay out of the war. As things in Guanajuato started getting worse, more and more fights were breaking out and streets were becoming more and more dangerous. Luz knew that she had to take her daughters to America, and she was saving the funds Francisco was sending to buy train tickets, as that was the safest way to transport her and her daughters across the country. But with how quickly things were turning, she was starting to think tragedy was going to befall them before they could afford the tickets. Then she heard Pancho Villa was coming to town, and there was some kind of rally or meeting of some kind at the train station. Now, from what has been described from my grandma Becky, Luz was a small, timid woman, and the thought of even trying to approach this big, dangerous man just scared the ever-loving crap out of her. It frightened her to her core. But with her options running out, she gathered her children about three to five, including Lupe. Unfortunately, we don't know our own history enough to have all of the names or the exact number— and we went to the station the day Pancho Villa was supposed to be there. She waited for hours, almost thinking that he was not going to show up. But then a crowd started to gather and a lot of commotion got Luz's attention. Pancho Villa rode in on a white horse, a large sombrero, smoking a cigar, and of course, he had his massive, classic mustache and double bullet belts on his chest with his revolutionaries trailing behind him. Luz knew that this was her chance and she approached him, mumbling and stumbling over her words, and she tried to speak to him. Penchovia stopped and waited for a second for her to try to speak with him before he just says, What do you want, woman? Grandma Becky always emphasized the way he said this was as short and as curt and impatient. Which, of course, this freaked Luz out and she wasn't sure what he would do, but she mustered the courage to ask for train tickets to join her husband in the States. At that, Penchovia got off his horse, standing over her for a moment before saying, wait here, and then he went to the train station. He came out a moment later with a whole roll of train tickets. The man stole a whole roll of tickets. He went up to Luz and he started just spinning off dozens of tickets and asked how many, like, do you want? So perplexed, Luz was stunned for a few minutes before finally asking just enough for her and her kids. This moment always stayed with my great-grandma Lupe, and she told this over and over to my grandma Becky growing up. Penchovia was Lupe's hero. She adored him because he helped them escape the wars, and that's how it became one of my grandma Becky's favorite stories. But it doesn't end there, for after they boarded the train, they finally thought that they were safe, but the train was attacked while they were on it. Sadly, I don't remember if the revolutionaries or the soldiers were the ones that did it, or if it was just bandits that were attacking, but Luzoner kids had to stay laying on the floor of the train, with bullets flying over their heads. Even after it had calmed down, they had to stay on the floor because the attacks could resume at any moment, so they did the whole way from Guanajuato to Tuscan, Arizona. It took a long while before they could actually find Francisco, and unfortunately, they never found Fruitoso, but... That is their story of coming to America and meeting Pancho Villa. I wish I could share more details, but I don't tell it as well as my grandma did, and it is something that I think my grandma Becky would have loved to share with as many people as she could. And I think it would mean a lot of my family just to be able to listen to one of their stories again. Of course, if you know anything else to throw in about Pancho Villa and the Mexican Revolution, that would be great. I personally haven't heard much about him besides their stories, besides that he was just something of a Mexican Robin Hood. But honestly, just sharing her story would be amazing. I'll tell you what, man. I think that that is a great idea. And I say that next week's story, we are going to cover the history of Pencho Villa. Because Pencho Villa is a bit of a complex character. Just as you say, he was kind of a Robin Hood figure. A lot more of his fame and honor comes from his early career versus how it is that things ended for him. But he has a great, fun story to tell. And I think that that would be a good one to do. So thank you to everyone who has listened, and thank you very much, Juan, for your submission. I appreciate all of you for listening to the podcast. Remember, if you want to submit your own, then please do go out and check our website. You can submit your submissions there, and I will see you all next time. It's the com. Goodbye, guys.